So is it well with your soul? Whatever you're facing? It's a wonderful hymn of the Christian faith. You know, we thank the Lord for these songs, these songs that have stood the test of time, these songs that have been sung by so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ across space and time, these songs that fortify us in our Christian walk, in our Christian faith. And I pray that wherever you are this morning in your life, whatever you're facing, that it is well with your soul. I know that uh, there are many different circumstances represented here this morning, many different uh, sets of trials, uh, many different moods that people are in. And, and what a blessing to be reminded when we come to church on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, what a blessing it is to be reminded uh, that our joy in the Lord, uh, the truth of God's faithfulness, of his character, transcends anything we could face, any negative circumstance that we could come up against. And we, we will see that as we go through uh, Exodus. So uh, if you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 22. Exodus 1, verses 8 to 22. We began our series in Exodus last week. So if you're here visiting with us this morning, you are in week 2 of uh, a, a new series. We were in Romans for two years, and uh, then we had a, a little bit of a, a break between Romans and this series where uh, Trey brought uh, God's Word to us from Philippians. And now we are in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Uh, for those who don't have this in their memory, uh, uh, two years ago we finished Genesis. So we spent two years in Genesis, uh, and that was actually quite a period of transition for our church. We were in one building, and then we were in the middle school, and then we came here and finished. Uh, so it was, uh, there were a lot of little chapters within that, but uh, we walked through the book of Genesis, and now we are going back to that same story as it continues in the book of Exodus. We began our series on Exodus last week uh, with uh, this review, we, we looked at the, the history of God's people throughout Genesis, obviously, and trying to review the entire book of Genesis, all 50 chapters, is a daunting task. But hopefully, what was said last week will at least situate us in the storyline that moves into the book of Exodus. And so I think about, as we go into a new series, what is my hope, what is my prayer for us as a church? And I think it is... Uh, one of the, the major prayers that I have for us uh, as a church is that we are all anticipating seeing the glory of God. That's such a big idea, the glory of God. It's kind of a church word, a church phrase uh, that we hear often. It, we just kind of get numb to it. It becomes very familiar to us. Now, but, but I pray that as we go through Exodus, we'll be able to put some meat on the bones of what for you may have become a bit of a familiar Christian cliche, that the glory of God will shine forth through Exodus as it does simply by reading it, and that that would greatly impact the life of this church. The glory of his faithfulness, of his redemption, the glory of his power, and of his holiness. We think of the glory of God as this multifaceted diamond that shines brightly in every direction. And we see so many of the facets of that in the book of Exodus. 
So many attributes of God come richly into view as we walk through this book. And so we're taking all of these attributes in, but on top of that, we are considering the fact that we who are in Christ are not a people who stand at the foot of the mountain in terror. We're not a people who stand at the foot of the mountain looking up at the God of Israel in terror. Or a people who are kept out of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, as we'll see as you go through uh, towards the end of Exodus and then into the remainder of the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible. The people are kept out of the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest can enter in. We are not that. We have ourselves, this is amazing, become God's holy temple. It's not just that we get to enter anytime we want into the inner sanctum, into the holiest place, but that we ourselves have become temples of the living God. This is amazing. And looking at this story of the erecting of the tabernacle and and thinking about how that actually happened and what it looked like helps us all the more to appreciate this reality, that we ourselves are the temple of God. We call God Father. And not just Father, but Abba. This Aramaic phrase that, that gets at the intimacy of the father and child relationship. We call God Abba like Daddy, or in the voice of our littlest children, Dada, this intimate language. And we come boldly into his presence anytime we want by the blood of Christ. We come by the blood of Christ and we find all the help that we need in our time of need. All the grace, all the mercy, all the power, all the strength from our Abba through the blood of his son, and we are his body. An incredible truth to consider as we think about this old covenant that will form in Exodus, as we think about what Christ has done for us, those who were once far off but have now been brought near. Not just far off because we were wicked sinners, but far off also because we are Gentiles, Our ancestors did not have God in the world, but we have been brought near and grafted into the household of God by the blood of Christ. And so as we read these ancient stories, as we read in Exodus, we always read them as those who've been purchased by Christ's blood, as those who are now grafted into the people of God through Christ, considering all that he has accomplished. So last week, as we began our series, the sermon was entitled, The Israelites in Egypt, part one. And so we just looked at those first seven verses. As I said, I tried to do more than that, but that really was all that uh, one sermon could take. And so The Israelites in Egypt, part one, those first seven verses of the book. And in those verses, we saw the arrival and the multiplication of the Israelites. They're called Israelites because they are the sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. As reported at the end of Genesis, and picked up again at the beginning of Exodus, Israel, or Jacob, and his 12 sons, and his 12 sons' families, 
have arrived in Egypt. So not including the wives, we're talking about 70 people in all who are now, they have arrived and they are established in Egypt. By God's providence, Joseph was already there waiting on them. God had sent him ahead. He had become the practical leader of the country and the one in charge of distributing food during a time of great famine. And we talked about the storyline there last week. And by the way, if you're feeling a little disoriented at this point, I would encourage you, go back and and listen to Genesis. Go back and read it. At the very least, go back and look at the last 20 chapters or so. Go back and look at the Joseph story at the very end. But God's providence brings Joseph to Egypt to provide for his family. And at the direction of Pharaoh, who had made Joseph second in command of all of Egypt, the Israelites were given the best of the land. They weren't just allowed to come in as an entire family and grow there, multiply there. They were brought in and given the most fertile land in all of Egypt. God's good Providence, the land of Goshen or Ramses in the eastern Nile Delta, right below the Mediterranean Sea. And so um, if you look at a map of Egypt, lower Egypt, because of the elevation, is actually northern Egypt, and it's in a place called the Nile Delta. You get, all, you get the Nile and all these tributaries going into the Mediterranean Sea. And upper Egypt, which is higher in elevation, is actually southern Egypt. Egypt. And so it's in northern Egypt or lower Egypt in the Nile Delta where God plants his people in Goshen or Ramses. So what happened once the family was settled in the land? Well, as we saw last week, they multiplied exponentially. I used the the phrase last week, a population explosion. And we see this in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They're expanding and multiplying at a rapid, rapid rate. Not just in a kind of uh, basic general way where we would understand population growth, but in a, in a remarkable way, in an outstanding way, a notable way. They, they, they really are prospering in that area, in their fertility, having of babies. It sounds a little like Four Corners Church, and <laughs> the having of babies. A, so to transport that back there, many, many babies, many children. So God was with the Israelites. That's one of the big ideas that we have to see at the beginning of the book. God was with them. And he had promised Jacob and his father Isaac and his father Abraham that he was going to make them into a great nation. Everything that was happening was flowing out of promise. This is one of the great themes of the Bible. And in fact, for the Christian, this is where uh, we stand. We stand on every word of God's promises. God's promises are precious to us. They are our great treasure. And all that we're reading about as we enter into Exodus, all of this population growth is the outworking of God's promises, a God who could never lie. It is Utterly impossible for God 
to lie. And because he is omnipotent, he is able to carry out every single aspect down to the tiniest detail of his infallible promises. And God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would grow a great nation. And there are many other aspects to that promise. And we talked about some of that last week. But we're seeing the outworking of that in Exodus. And as Exodus shows us, God in his sovereignty had chosen to do this on Egyptian soil. God did not choose to multiply his people in Canaan. He chose to multiply them on Egyptian soil. And as we said last week, he did that in order that he might bring them into Egypt as a family, make them into a people, and bring them out as a nation redeemed by their God. So that's what we looked at last week. But today, the situation begins to shift. The the situation turns. The, The circumstances turn. God is still there. God's promises are still true. God's power is still in effect. And God's presence is still with his people. But the circumstances begin to shift. The situation begins to look grim. And so the title for the sermon today is The Israelites in Egypt, Part 2, and we will look today at verses 8 to 22. And so if you would, go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word together. I'm going to go ahead and begin in verse 1. This is God's Holy Word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful, And increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Literally, they're mightier than us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God 
and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord. Let's thank him for his word and ask that he would bless the teaching of it. Abba, Father, we praise you that we can come here now into your holy presence. Father, you are always present with your people, but we can come to you and know that you hear us as we come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We come in the name of the one who has passed through the heavens, the one who has sat down at your right hand, the one who stands there forever interceding for us. He, he prays on our behalf. He speaks as advocate on our behalf, standing always as our atoning Redeemer. Father, we praise you for this Christ, and we thank you that the story of the Christ is uh, the biblical story, that every book of this Bible is the story of the great Christ. And we thank you that we get time like this to just gather around a portion of this story and especially some of the earliest chapters of this great narrative. And we get to look into what you were doing and how you were doing it. Father, we thank you that we can be together this morning as Christians, that we can encourage each other. Lead us today into gospel-centered conversations. Lead us this morning and into the afternoon. Lead us into a, a mindset of being edifying to our brothers and sisters. Help us be attentive to one another. Help us not waste this day of gathering. Father, thank you that we are together in the name of your Son. Thank you that we have your word before us, that we have these glorious songs to sing that have brought comfort to your people and have encouraged your people to step out victoriously in the Christian life. Father, thank you that we have this time on the Lord's Day to worship corporately. Would we be here now, Father? Would we not be elsewhere in our minds? Would we be present here? Would you instruct us in your word? Would this sermon be clear? Lord, would it be Christ-centered? Would it be substantive? And would you use it by your Holy Spirit to pierce our hearts and to make us more like Christ? We ask God today that you would save sinners, that if there are those among us who do not know you, who are unconverted, who are not born again, who have not been given a new heart, who have not repented of their sins and turned towards Christ in faith, who have not been justified by faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone. Lord, we pray that you would do that work today, that you would shine 
the light of the gospel in their hearts and give them new hearts. We pray that, God, and we we thank you that you have given us new hearts. We praise you that you are the saving God, the delivering God, the redeeming God that we read about so clearly in the book of Exodus. Would you be with us now by your spirit? We pray in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. So last week, we looked at their arrival and their multiplication. And today we turn to, our our points for this morning are their enslavement, verses 8 to 14, and their elimination, verses 15 to 22. And by their elimination, I don't mean that they are actually eliminated. We see that the opposite is what happens, but that there is the objective to eliminate them at least in part and probably in the end entirely. So their enslavement and their elimination. That's what we'll look at this morning. So first, their enslavement. And for that, I want to return to verses 8 to 14 to put these clearly in view. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Here we have a massive transition. Up to this point, In the story, you would think that the Israelites would always be a favored people. It's magnificent what God does at the end of Genesis. And the fact that Pharaoh invites them in and lets them stay there gives them the best of the land. Joseph is practically in charge. Given the extent of his influence, his power, and his favor, how could that state not continue? How could their previously favored condition not continue. But something happens. A new king comes to power, the Bible says here, who did not know Joseph. That's all it says. Whether he was ignorant of Joseph or he simply refused to acknowledge Joseph, we're not told But the status that Joseph had gained for his family has now disappeared. It has evaporated. It it is as though the history books have been cleared. Now there's just the presence of this mass of foreign, potentially threatening people. The favored status has entirely, not partially, disappeared. Favor is now replaced with suspicion, fear, and hostility. You can only imagine what this would have been like for the Israelites as this transition took shape, 
as they began to see these things happen. Fear, suspicion, and hostility. This new king looks out over his kingdom and he sees this ever-increasing people group as a potential threat. They have become too mighty or mightier than us. If there is a war, they may join our enemies and try to escape from the land. And there is some debate among commentators, among scholars, as to what exactly the Hebrew is saying at this point. And so most of the English translations will say, escape from the land. But I'm convinced by some who argue that it is better to take this as a Hebrew idiom, a, a, a phrase that you can't really take word for word because it's a group of words that means something different when put together. You know, anyone who's learned a second language knows that idioms are the most challenging because you can go through word for word and understand what's being said, but when you learn a new idiom where words come together and they don't actually mean what they say individually, but they're only understood collectively, that's where it becomes challenging. Well, some have argued here that there is an idiom in place which means take possession of the land. So they're not concerned that they'll join their enemies and flee, but rather they are concerned that they will join their enemies and take possession, rise up over the land, which makes more sense in the context. The solution of this king of Egypt is to enslave them. Let's enslave them. Let's press them down under our hand, stripping away all ability to grow and prosper and taking many of their lives through hard labor. We know throughout human history that it is often the case that when there is this, this, uh, this objective to enslave, this objective to put under this kind of oppression, that typically there is also the objective to get, ready, to get rid of many of these people through the hard labor itself. Many will die. So before we go any further uh, about this affliction, this oppression, this enslavement, I think we need to ask a question that probably everyone is wondering, and that is, who is this king? Who is this king of Egypt? The text here gives us no timeline and no name. Just Pharaoh or just king. And by the way, let me just quickly say this. Why is it that Moses, as he's writing this, doesn't name these Pharaohs? I wonder that. Like, why? why? Joseph's right in the middle of it. These are household names. Moses is right in the middle. Why does he not name these Pharaohs? And I think the biggest reason for that is because it's a theological reason is because Moses is making the case that these pharaohs are nothing. Moses is making the case that these seemingly great, supposedly godlike men are nothing. They are non-entities, as one commentator puts it. It is Yahweh, the Lord, who establishes his name, who expresses his name, who upholds his name in the book of Genesis and throughout the book of Exodus. The Pharaohs are as nothing. They are as dust. So these men who desire to live forever through the building of these great monuments, these men who thought they would live forever, 
as Pharaoh's with all of their servants were as nothing. And so that's the reason we don't get all of these names. But that doesn't mean we're not curious. That doesn't mean that all of these thousands of years later, we don't want to sort of figure out what is the timeline? When did this happen? When did this happen in relation to other things in biblical history? And who are the Pharaohs in this story? Well, the text here doesn't give us anything, but thankfully, the Bible elsewhere gives us dating information that helps us to reconstruct the background. So let me just say this to you, just as a little, little preparation here. We're gonna do a little bit of math. Um, so you just buckle in with me, stay with me. It's only addition. So it's only addition, simple addition. So we're not gonna get too complex, no fractions or anything like that. But we do need to do a little bit of math. And so we have to begin with 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. And this is what it says in 1 Kings 6, 1. In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So what we're told here is that there are in the fourth year of the fourth year of Solomon's reign is the same as the 480th year after the Exodus. Since the fourth year of Solomon's reign can be confidently placed around 966 BC, give or take 2 years or so, we are then able to add these 480 years to get the date of the Exodus, which would be 1446. BC. Then we read this in Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 to 41. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And so here we find out that 430 years is the precise number, whereas Genesis 15 which Josh read to us earlier, gives us an approximate figure of 400 years. Here we get the precise number in Exodus chapter 12 of 430 years. So now we have to add 430 years to 1446 to get the year that Jacob and his family entered Egypt. And that puts us at 1876 B.C., So in 1876 B.C., Jacob and his family enter Egypt. In 1446 B.C., 430 years later, God brings them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Well, a little bit more, a little bit more. Joseph was 39 when his family came out of Egypt. Came to Egypt, I'm sorry. He was 39 when his family came to Egypt around 1876, and he died at 110. So that puts Joseph's death at 1805. 1805. History tells us that a foreign people from the north, known as the Hyksos, came into Egypt in 1730, just 75 years after Joseph's death. So think about that for a moment. Joseph is there. He's in the flesh. And then after those years pass, 
He dies 110 years old in 1805. And then there's 75 years where the people just continue to grow and the people continue to expand under the same regime in Egypt. But then 75 years after Joseph's death, a new people come to power in Egypt, known as the Hyksos dynasty. And they ruled the Nile Delta from 1730 to 1550. They pushed the old regime into southern Egypt and they ruled the Nile Delta, which is the place where the Israelites were in Goshen or Ramses. This is where the Israelites were located. So for 200 years, roughly, the Israelites are under this new regime. And so here's my point. I hope you didn't check out too much during that, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of historical background to situate all of this. And here's my point. This transition to a new king who did not know Joseph is probably referring to the Hyksos dynasty. These are Asian peoples who have come south into Egypt. They are foreigners. They are not native Egyptians, but they establish themselves as the rulers of Egypt. They took power and pushed the old regime out. And that means that what we are reading today probably begins around 1730 and extends all the way up through the birth of Moses in 1526 when the old Egyptian powers had already regained control. And so what you have are all of these political shuffles going on in Egypt. We're not given any information about that here in Exodus. We have to go to the biblical chronology, and then we have to go to Egyptology and the history of Egypt to understand what had happened during this period. Uh, The Bible doesn't give us all of these details, but what we need to understand is that from the time of Joseph's death, all the way up, to the time when Moses is born, you have these sh- this shuffling of political power. And through all of it, what we find is that the Israelites are caught right in the middle. They are caught in these political shuffles. And under each regime, the oppression continues. It's not as though once the Hyksos lose power that the old Egyptian dynasty, the 18th dynasty that takes their place, says, oh, what are you doing to these people? What are you doing to these people? We gotta stop, let's reverse that policy. No, they simply continue the policy of their predecessors. The old days of favor have passed away And what we're reading this week in Exodus does not inform us of all of this history. It simply tells us of their enslavement and their mistreatment. So what does our passage here say about this enslavement and mistreatment? Well, it's easy to quickly read over this without feeling it, right? You could easily read over these words, and particularly for people who have not experienced oppression for people who have not experienced what we read here, it would be very easy to just for it to be so foreign. You just read over it very quickly without feeling the weight of it. But look at all of the language used. Afflicted with heavy burdens. The word afflicted is heavy enough, right? But it's afflicted with burdens that are particularly 
heavy. Here we see the stacking up of language. Ruthlessly made to work as slaves. Their lives made bitter with hard service. There, there, were no, uh, there was no life of, of personal fulfillment. There, there, there was no five-year, 10-year, 20-year, 50-year plan. It was all oppression and enslavement for these people. That is all that every parent expected for his or her child. And then again, in verse 14, ruthlessly made to work as slaves. This word ruthlessly literally means with violence, as we see it in the Hebrew text, with violence. They are, they are brought to this point of being brutally enslaved, brutally, ruthlessly, violently enslaved. They worked on cities and in the fields, working in brick and mortar, building store cities in the Nile Delta, and laboring in the fields. And I'll just say a quick word about Ramses. So some have argued that the Exodus took place uh, during the 13th century, so during the 1200s. And they use as evidence this reference to Ramses here because uh, they're, it, they're basing it on Ramses II, who they say would, been, would have been the Pharaoh of the Exodus. But many have argued that this name Ramses could have pre-existed Ramses II. And there is some evidence even that it existed during the time of the Hyksos dynasty, this, this, uh, this word Ramses, this idea of Ramses, and that it could have been named that previously. Some have also argued that later updates, scribal updates, put in the name as it would have been known later, Ramses. So whether there was something there before, Kantir or, or Avaris or something like that, it was changed scribally in the Hebrew tradition to Ramses because that's how it would have been known. It would not have been known by its previous name. But either way, these cities are being built by these Hebrew slaves. And they worked under taskmasters. They weren't just sent out. You get your work done, come back at the end of the day, and as long as it's good, we'll leave you alone. No, they are put under taskmasters who violently beat them as they worked. And in fact, it's interesting, there are wall paintings uh, during the reign of Thutmose III, who I think is the, the pharaoh of the Exodus. There are wall paintings that depict, even during that time, not of Israelites, but of other slaves who are, being, uh, who are under the watchful eye of these taskmasters who have these heavy whips in their Hands, what the slaves would have endured. But what's the result? Does it work? Do they start to dwindle? Do the Israelites start to decrease? No. Instead, they prosper. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And what we see is, after verse 12, that's why the oppression continues to escalate. So two things are running parallel through all of this. God is blessing his people, and the Egyptians are oppressing his people. So what are we to take away from all of this? As we read this, this is, this is helpful for us simply to understand, yes, 
Because this is the story of God's people. This is our story as well, of those who have been grafted in. But what are we to take away from all of this? Well, let me just give you a few things here. First, God has never promised his people a life free of suffering. From the very beginning. God never promised his people that the life that he has paved for them would be free of suffering. Consider Paul's words in Acts 14, 22, as he spoke to the, to the disciples on his missionary journeys, he said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What is it like to be a Christian? Well, one of the descriptors of a Christian is one who faces many tribulations as he's entering the kingdom of God. One who suffers much. This is not to be surprising to God's people. We also see that in the suffering, God is always there. There's no voice from God booming in Exodus chapter one. That's one thing that's so striking is where's God? Where's God? Many of them would have said, where is the Lord? He's there. He's there. But he is not always heard and felt, but he's there. And it is his word that sustains us as we suffer. How do we know God was there? Because of what he's doing with the people. His providence is present. He is multiplying them. God is present. And here you are this morning as one of the people of God, and maybe you're saying, where's God? Where is God? Know that just as he was present in Exodus 1, In all of this affliction, he is present with you. Be certain of that. Know that. His word tells us it is so. And finally, we must humbly embrace all that comes to us, knowing that God is working out his purposes for his glory. We have many unanswered questions. Anyone who thinks that they're going to have all their questions answered is foolish. We, of course, have many unanswered questions. Who are we as finite and limited, as intellectually and spiritually deficient as we are? Who do we think we are that we're going to have all of our questions answered in this life? Like Job, not all of our questions are answered, but we prostrate in praise. And we find that God works many things for his glory that are painful to us and that oftentimes make zero sense. Listen to the way the psalmist describes this entire ordeal in Exodus 1 in Psalm 105, 24 to 25. He says this, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. And then listen to these mysterious words, these unsettling words, these words that leave us scratching our heads, but that cause us to humbly prostrate ourselves under the sovereign hand of God. This is what the next verse says. He, speaking of God, turned their hearts to hate his people. God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. That's what God's word says. God 
was sovereignly over Joseph being sold into slavery and ending up in Egypt. God was sovereignly over the multiplication of the people and the same God who worked favor towards his people in Pharaoh's heart in the time of Joseph is the God who is working all of this according to the counsel of his perfect will in Exodus chapter one. He is sovereign and we must humbly embrace all that comes to us no matter how painful, knowing that he works all things out for our good and for his glory. But now we see that it gets even worse as the oppression continues. And let's look at verses 15 to 22 as we consider their elimination. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We will discuss this text more next week, obviously, uh, when Moses is introduced, because Moses is dropped right into this scenario But for now, we need to see that two things continue. The oppression by the Egyptians continues and the multiplication by the Lord God continues. Before, the kings of Egypt used enslavement. That was the former policy. Becoming more and more ruthless as the years went by, we see that there, there weren't little lulls. It wasn't as though, as what we read before, it wasn't as though there was slavery and then there was a period of rest. And there was slavery and a period of rest. There was slavery and then it got a little less and then it went back up. No, no, no. It only escalated. It only escalates in Exodus 1. Becoming more and more ruthless with each passing year. But now, the king in power turns to something far more wicked. He turns to infanticide, and particularly a secret kind of infanticide. He orders the chief Hebrew midwives to do something appalling. When the women, these chief midwives, and presumably these women are over other midwives. It's kind of unthinkable that there would be two midwives for all of the people of Israel, especially considering how much they had multiplied. These seem to be two chief midwives who are over the other midwives. They are Hebrews. And he orders them, when the women are giving birth, if it is a son, they are to kill it. Presumably without the mother knowing. This is wicked. Here's the mother giving birth to her baby. And the midwife 
is supposed to be down there watching and, and, and as the baby is coming forth, she's to recognize quickly if it's a boy or a girl. And then, it seems, she is to strangle the life out of the baby. A quiet death. And it is meant to have the long-term effect of eliminating the people altogether. Get rid of the males and you get rid of the threat. And then the girls and the women can be either assimilated into the Egyptians or used as slaves in whatever way the Egyptians see fit. I want to just point out something quickly about this. Notice who is named and who is not. It is this great Pharaoh who is not named. Once again, to what I said earlier, he's given no name. But these two Hebrew slaves are given names. They are dignified by this story. They are elevated and the Pharaoh is brought low. He's an unnamed, wicked ruler. And these two hero women who do what is right and what is just and what is good, and we'll see in a moment, they are named. So as I said, as I indicated there, something happens that the Pharaoh doesn't expect. The midwives actually, here we go, disobey him. What? They disobey the Pharaoh of Egypt. They do not carry out his horrific, murderous order. Now, we need to understand this. This is very important. This would have been unthinkable in Egypt. For those of us who are parents, we realize we have to work through being disobeyed against all the time. And that's why we discipline our children and we teach our children and all of that. So, so it seems, like, oh yeah, they, they disobeyed. In Egyptian society, this would have been unthinkable. Evidence from the time shows that the Pharaoh was clearly regarded as a god. So you read in ancient records, you read words like these, sentiments like these. What is the king? This is written from one lower ruler to the Pharaoh. What is the king of upper and lower Egypt? He is a god by whose dealings one lives the father and mother of all men, alone by himself, without an equal. He just licked up that praise. Just received it up. Loved it. That's what people thought of Pharaoh. Or something like this. To the king, my lord, my God, my son, the sun from the sky. And then he writes, your servant, the dirt at your feet. Wow, that's the way the Pharaoh was thought of. Who would disobey Pharaoh? Who would disobey this person? Unthinkable. But the midwives do. They disobey him. And they disobey him, we're told, because they fear God. They fear God rather than man. These women are reflecting the character of their father Abraham. Their distant, distant, distant father. When we read in Genesis twenty-two twelve, 12, uh, the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham as he is about to sacrifice his son. Ironically here, uh, as he is to obey God in 
being willing to sacrifice his son. He doesn't, of course. The Lord never intended for him to do that. But then here, these women actually fight against the sacrificing, the killing of these Hebrews. The angel of the Lord says to Abraham, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Fear of God is at the core. It's at the center. It's the foundation of piety. It's the foundation of right religion. It is the foundation of all spirituality. Where there is no fear of God, there is nothing. There's no spirituality. There's no relationship with God if you don't have fear of God, if you don't revere God, if you don't recognize his power and his holiness. Where there is no fear of God, there is no true Christianity. There is no true religion. There is a facade. There is a lie. Fear of God is at the center. Now, it is unclear how much they would have known about it at this point, about about the previous history, about what the Lord had done, about the promises. But what they do know causes them to revere him over any other authority. What What has been revealed to them causes them to recognize that God is worthy to be feared more than this very fearful, most powerful man on the planet at the time. Acts 5.29 tells us that the early apostles of Jesus recognized the same thing. Peter and the apostles answered when they were told to quit preaching in the name of Christ, we must obey God rather than men. God is chief. God is king. God is ruler. No authority on earth is to come remotely close to the authority of God. Matthew 10, 28, there Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And let me just say this to you. The midwives had only to expect to be executed, right? To disobey Pharaoh, you don't get a second chance. That's it. You're gonna be executed. They literally faced execution. But as Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God is worthy of our fear. The right kind of loving, reverent fear of God that recognizes his power and his holiness. When the failure of this plan is discovered, the king asks why. And who knows how much time has passed and how he found out, but he finds out. It's not going like it's supposed to. And the midwives say this, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They are either vigorous genetically or they are vigorous in the sense that they are more active and less passive. Uh, One commentator uh, remarked that the Egyptian women uh, likely could have been more passive in childbearing, that they would simply lay back and let it happen and let the midwives take care of everything. All of you women are laughing and saying, that that can't happen. There is no laying back and letting it happen. Uh, But they're more passive. And that maybe the Hebrew women are, are here being described more in terms of how they are as a culture, that they're more active in their giving birth. Either way, this is what they say. One commentator, J.A. Moyer, says their reply to Pharaoh was certainly evasive, but their explanation must have had an element of truth in it for it to have been accepted without question. 
the Pharaoh does not seem to bat an eye. He doesn't seem to see this as some made-up thing. There seems to be some truth in what they are saying. However they had worked it out, however they had communicated to their fellow Hebrews, there seems to be an element of truth here in the difference between the way Egyptian women and the way Hebrew women give birth. And then this was picked up and used by these women. John McKay says this, there must have been sufficient truth in their reply for Pharaoh to remain silent. But he does, he remains silent. He does not argue. And the result is a blessing from the Lord. These midwives, who it seems could not have children, were blessed with children of their own. It seems that the midwife class were a people, or were a, a class of women who could not have children. Or they were, too, they were older, and so they were made midwives. And here the Lord blesses them with children for themselves. And what happens with the Israelites? Verse 20, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. This is the constant refrain of Exodus chapter 1. And it tells us that God's plans cannot be thwarted. He is sovereign over all. He will bring to fruition what he purposes. So finally in verse 22, we get the last resort, the final solution. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. What was secretive before and what was focused on a a handful of women has now become a national policy of infanticide. It has now become a national policy of genocidal murder. They are to wipe out the baby boys as a people. He says this to his people. Every son born just cast them right on into the river. And most of the people would have lived along the river because there's not a lot of rainfall in Egypt. And so the reason uh, that the, the Egyptians are able to live as they do, where they do, is because of the Nile River. Cast the babies into the Nile. Interestingly, the Nile was considered a god for the Egyptians. And so this was, would have been undoubtedly seen as a form of child sacrifice. Throw them to the God of the Nile as he eats them up. And we appease our God. Let me make a few final observations before we finish up this morning. Who is doing this? The answer is Satan. The answer ultimately is Satan. It is the devil Yes, Pharaoh is carrying this out. And the Egyptians are complicit with it, we assume. And God is sovereign over it. But it is from the heart of Satan, that evil serpent of old, that father of lies and murderer from the beginning, who is working this out. Why? Because it is, it is his objective to destroy the seed of the woman. And of course, what better way to destroy the seed of the woman, the he who will crush his very own head, than to destroy all the male babies of the Israelites. Stamp out that seed. Stamp out that future deliverer, that one who is to come. From Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the tribe of Judah. 
to whom the obedience of the peoples will be, who will have the scepter and the rule forever. Crush that seed. Of course, we know here, gathered this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, we know that it did not work. Christ was born, Christ died and was raised, and he has been exalted, and it is in him that we live and move and have our being this morning. Finally, God would later take vengeance on the Egyptians. Remember the flood of waters that come in on the Red Sea? God would take vengeance on the Egyptians when their boys, who had now become men, are thrown into the water of the Red Sea. Do you see the justice of God? Throwing these baby Hebrews into the Nile, and then it is the Lord who takes vengeance on the enemies of his people. Remember, it is not for us to take vengeance, because vengeance vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It is God who exacts vengeance in his wrath, in his justice, in his judgment. And he will flood over with water those Hebrew, those Egyptian boys who had become men in the Red Sea. So God will protect his people, ensure the preservation of the seed, and bring great judgment upon his enemies, showing that the gods of Egypt are utterly worthless. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. There's one God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us of who you are, of what you do, of how you work. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty over history and your sovereignty over us, over our lives, God, over everything, everything we face. You are in control. You are providential. Lord, I pray that we would leave here this morning knowing that Any afflictions or oppression or anything we're suffering, Lord, we can humbly submit to you and we can endure that knowing that you are with us and that all will be well in the end. And that these very things are part of the ingredients for your glory and our good. Father, would we... Would we be biblical in that sense and how we live? Would we not be just those who say we believe what is here, but we we would be those who live it, who really do show that we trust in you in how we live and how we respond to trials. Father, thank you for this time together. Please bless this time with the Lord's Supper, Lord. We pray that our hearts would be knit together and knit to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that in his name, amen.